Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Artie, Phil, and I are joined by death panel contributor, Abby Cardis. Abby is a perinatal epidemiologist, a longtime friend of the panel and audience favorite. And last time that we had her on, like a week or so ago, she teased me really hard about doing too long of an introduction. So I did a shorter <laughs> one today. I love All it. joking aside, <laughs> no, <no>. Abby, <laughs> welcome back to the death panel. It's always a good day when you're joining us. Thank you. Um, And so today we're going to talk about long COVID and the welfare state. As we shifted into the Beyblade era of the pandemic response over the last year and a half or so with many countries, especially and including the United States, deciding to pursue focus protection and let it rip, hundreds of millions of people have been infected with COVID exponentially more than ever before. And with studies showing evidence that long COVID affects up to 30% of people who are infected with COVID, and this is importantly a middle-of-the-road figure, most data researchers I speak to say that 30% um, is average and likely an undercount. And the fact of the matter is, no matter what the prevalence is, it's too much. And since no state leader seems to care about trying to prevent long COVID, the discussion has turned to how to gatekeep who counts as having long COVID how to cure it, and how to avoid the need for any sort of radical overhaul of the social safety net, health finance, or disability supports. So the bottom line here is that our systems of care and health finance are absolutely not prepared for this, and that's what we're going to discuss today in the U.S. context. So the Biden administration has been promising for months now that they would be addressing long COVID in a comprehensive way. In Ashish Jha's words, you would be hearing, quote, a lot more from us on long COVID in the near future. So recently, they released two big reports messaging that they were fulfilling this very promise. There are two plans, one called the National Research Action Plan on Long COVID and the report Services and Supports for Longer-Term Impacts of COVID-19. And it's the second report that I, I really want us to spend some a lot of time on here today because essentially the U.S. government made a huge PDF saying, here, look at us helping people with long COVID. And it's basically just full of helpful info like Medicaid exists and right. it's, have you exists. heard of SSDI? <laughs> Coping right. with stress. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I'm particularly also, I think, as B mentioned, excited to talk about this, uh, the sort of social services side report of what, you know, the government is saying it's long COVID response, as it were, is or uh, really, as they set up, what is, you know, what are the existing avenues for which it thinks the state has adequate resources to deal with the prevalence of long COVID. This, I think, is one of the most patronizing documents we've possibly seen from the (laughs) Biden administration. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as we've mentioned, like they've been telegraphing this for a long time. So we've sort of been we've been promised action, right? We've been promised that the administration would be taking new steps on long COVID, addressing it with new research, new policies. And I think when people hear this, when people hear like, oh, they've released two big reports, right? It's like a 120 page PDF. It's like two two reports that are like 200 pages together, like 120 pages that map out what the existing welfare state is, which is, I think, again, you know, mostly what I'm interested in talking about. And then 80 pages on a new research agenda for long COVID, basically. And, you know, so when I think I think when people hear this, when people hear this announcement, they think like, okay, 
they're going to do some kind of new welfare thing, right? They're going to do some sort of new, you know, welfare program for long COVID, or that might even be a little overdetermined. I think some people might actually think like, actually, I think part of the problem here with some of this is that I, I think to a degree when people hear about the phenomenon of long COVID or when people hear about the prevalence of long COVID, I do think a lot of people have thought, especially over the last year or so, like, oh, there must be a safety net already there to catch mm-hmm. those people. Right. And I think in some ways, this document that we're talking about, like re- reflects that um, idea that somehow the existing U.S. welfare state you know, must be there to catch people with long COVID. If only the state would sort of recognize long COVID in a more sincere way, or if only, you know, to the extent that it's not catching those people already, that basically it's a, a question of, I don't know, making sure that people are aware of putatively like what is already there for them. Mm hmm. Yeah, I guess this is what they call the um, whole of government approach, right? You're, you're bringing together information on how uh, every department or every agency across the government is going to contribute to this uh, bigger effort. And I guess on the one hand, uh, in the highly like porous and decentralized American state, uh, doing even that is is no small task. But at the same time, when you make all of this stuff into a PDF – uh, it tends to project a level of coherence that um, doesn't necessarily exist. And what you have <laughs> at the end of the day is this is this uh, really aesthetically like pleasing picture of a uh, hero, all of the different how the different like hands of the state are going to contribute to this thing. Uh, but what it doesn't show you, what it is intended not to uh, show you in a way is sort of where all of the uh, the holes are and the sort of the gaping <laughs> voids um, that people are going to fall into. And so it ends up sort of being like taken together. It, it all feels a little um, like sort of pathetic as a projection of power. It feels, I think maybe a shade of sinister beyond pathetic because as I was reading through this document, like, and it really is just a list of like websites and phone numbers, you know, that you can call, I guess, to find <laughs> yeah, out about like what directory. <laughs> you may be eligible for. And as I was reading it, I was really thinking this is just kind of a compendium of all the failures of social policy in the U.S. like over the past 40 years, like several decades. But I think it's a it's a shade beyond pathetic because throughout this document, they the authors of the document, they are kind of like peppering lip service to, you know, health equity and and health disparities throughout. And it really reminded me of the episode about elite capture of identity politics, because I don't know, it seems like a very cynical way to approach inequalities and health disparities is like just through this lens of presenting this whole this whole document along the lines of these disparities are so bad, you know, like, we need to care about long COVID because we're we're centering equity. But <laughs> there's nothing in this document that shows me that the Biden administration is grappling with what is causing and exacerbating those inequities and how the inadequate welfare state is certainly both creating and exacerbating health disparities. No, I mean, I, I, just to ground and contextualize this report. So basically, this this came about because in early April 2022, Biden issued this memo saying basically to Health and Human Services, I want you to produce two reports, one on social supports and one that's a research agenda. And you have 120 days to do this. 
And so the one that we're going to, you know, that we're talking about right now, services and support for longer term impacts of COVID-19. And they say the purpose of this report is essentially to just like outline everything that's currently available across all federal agencies, as we've said. And it really proudly boasts, you know, expect a a website to materialize, to spawn (laughs) out of this document, you know, and it's the Biden administration. So any policy is going to begin and end with a website like we know that going in. And of course, they also make sure to say, you know, that both reports are, wait for it, intended to serve as two tools in the larger ecosystem of the needed response to the longer term impacts of COVID-19. So essentially, you know, it's really just highlighting these over 200 different services and supports that are available for people with long COVID, for healthcare professionals who work with people with long COVID. And while, yes, this is categorically true, it's a big list, as we're saying, it's important that what those things actually are, not just the volume of what's there. And the Biden administration has taken the volume as a win and just sort of run with it. And Phil, I remember you said something so long ago on the show, pre, pre-COVID, pre I think it was about Medicaid or something in 2018, about how often when you're teaching your students about federalism and about how social programs work, people just largely assume that there's already a program for anything and everything. You know, if the need is known to be known, then people think that it being known must mean that it's taken care of somehow and that a federal program exists. And that the fact of the matter is that's just so far from the truth. And I think we're all in agreement here that essentially this document would be better described as a very thorough and actually hilariously tragic mapping of exactly this phenomenon, which is that there are so many holes in the social safety net that it's actually impossible to see it as a kind of comprehensive system to catch people when they experience debility, illness, reductions in their capacity. You know, when you're marked as being a nonproductive worker, there's very little there to catch you. Yeah, I guess it sort of seems that the uh, the way that they they start this document is, you know, the problem is uh, long COVID. And then, you know, what's the you know, what, what are the sort of. Uh, little parts of the state that are going to help us solve that problem. But if, if you think about the kinds of things that they're identifying, I mean, these are things that I don't just affect people who have uh, long COVID. This affects such a broader uh, population. And so if you, from a policy analytic perspective, you would think that you would start with the problem is this utter patchwork of a social safety net right. Uh, right. that we have, which affects people with COVID, <laughs> yeah. people without COVID. Uh, but you can't do that in part because this idea that uh, the state sort of is what it is, nothing can ever really change except for minor deviations uh, from it is really kind of baked into the DNA uh, of both parties. And so you have this kind of document that posits long COVID as the, the sort of the essence of the problem to be dealt with. And so it's no surprise that you get these kind of incremental um, responses to that or responses that uh, really focus on like divvying up the the long COVID population and then thinking about how to respond to these these very um, niche uh, kind of uh, uh, policy problems rather than really thinking about it in its totality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're very clear about this, actually, in the opening to this document that they're that we're talking about right now. They make sure to note very clearly, you know, directly addressing other people with disabilities or chronic illnesses, saying that these are inclusive tools for everyone, you know. I I guess as a gesture, you could say that, like, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of people who are like, that's so appreciated. And look at the Biden administration recognizing the needs of people with disabilities or whatever. But like, it's also important to remember that we're all getting fucked 
together, like disabled, not disabled, long COVID, chronically ill, whatever. You know, this is something that Artie and I argue like at great length in our book, but we're all surplus and the lack of a social safety net and socialized medicine towards a public health is actually one of the most important kinds of labor discipline. It disciplines the worker, the non-worker, and often even the boss, just not the boss's boss, like the insurance company. You know, (laughs) I mean, I'm only half joking here, maybe even like a quarter joking, but we're all interdependent. And this shitty long COVID plan, not plan, directory rather, fucks not just people with long COVID or disabled people or chronically ill people writ large. It actually fucks all of us. Right. And so let's get into some of the things that are in this, because you know, we we can make a, we can sort of gesture towards what we think this plan or these plans are positioned as. Uh, certainly, obviously, again, they were telegraphed as this big moment of this is when we'll reveal what we imagine for a response. Um, but on top of that, they do say, and this is from you know much much further in the document, like uh, really towards the end. But they do really explicitly state, uh, "quote is an important component of the overall federal." response. Um, (laughs) This report compiles federal services and supports into one document includes a description of those resources as well as information on how to access them for each of the resources, a website or phone number is provided. So again, this directory feel. Um, But so let's get into some of what it, it talks about, because actually, I think that in, in some ways, you know, we've talked about this. I think we kind of have vaguely, you know, gestured towards this as sort of a cell phone of the Biden administration. In mm-hmm. some ways, I don't think they had to do this in this exact way. Um, they have really given us a PDF that is, again, 120 pages mapping out kind of like the explicit contours of how the U.S. welfare system sucks. And it is messaged to people with long COVID who are, you know, perhaps newly getting frustrated or perhaps for some of them for the first time realizing like oh shit there is there are all these holes that we're talking about in the safety net because they're you know trying to access things and they're like uh yeah so under this program like that doesn't count as a disability and that then you know they're like what what do you mean it doesn't count as a disability surely you know anyway point being so you know let's get into some of the details where do you think we where should we start I think the know your rights section might be a good place to start because that's kind of one of the most broadly optimistic uh, frameworks, I think, in this entire thing. And it's towards the towards the beginning. So I think that's a good place for us to start. Yeah, I, I, I can't help but think that you can learn a lot about a welfare state from the uh, sort of order in which uh, it's described and it's. (laughs) Uh, illustri- highly illustrative <laughs> to me that the first thing that's described in the document is legal assistance, right? The the premise being uh, at some point, this terrible system will uh, screw you over and you will need uh, a lawyer or legal assistance to help you with that. Um, what might happen as a result of that? Who knows? Um, <laughs> but uh, that's sort of uh, where what, what the sort of opening premise. Is it wrong? Maybe not, uh, you know, but it is sort of a comment on just how limited and how gate kept uh, and anything like social rights, uh, so to speak, uh, are in the United States. Absolutely. <laughs> and this section starts off by saying, quote, if you have long COVID, you may be considered, quote, an individual with a disability under civil rights laws, including the Americans with Disabilities Act, Section 501 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, and Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. 
Under these laws, someone with long COVID has a disability if the individual's condition or any of its symptoms is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. There are additional rights discussed throughout this chapter. And so it really just frames this sort of in this very positive way of like, here are these four laws we're going to walk you through. You know, each of these laws basically is going to protect you as a uh, from these covered entities, you know, providers, employers, and schools. And the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, that they mention these disability legal frameworks, right? And they don't mention the difficulty of leveraging them and the fact that leveraging them, as Phil's saying, is usually always reactive. And it's not the kind of thing that can be broadly applied. Like my victory suing under the ADA does not help your uh, access need, even if our access needs are identical. And that's that's something that not a lot of people know. And that that's something that obviously they're not going to foreground when the whole point of this section is to be like, don't worry, don't don't feel like society's throwing you out and leaving you behind and letting you, you know, just completely fall through the cracks. You have civil rights. Well, I and I think this is where the order of uh, what is prioritized here is really illustrative because so much of what the ADA actually concerns is stuff like uh, workplace protections. Again, by protections, as B is saying, it's like, (laughs) you know, retroactive if you're able to successfully win a lawsuit kind of protections. Um, But it is, you know, again, it is a really significant, I think, kind of foregrounding here um, because it is foregrounding for the most part, I think, that like the issue of long covid is for is I, I think for the most part seen as this sort of like workplace uh protections issue like make sure you can keep your job even if you've got long covid or something Talk we won't guarantee boss. you you know paid leave or anything like that because we don't have a program for that as we'll get to later in the in the document you know um but in general you have this sort of generic protection Just make sure that you stay productive within the workforce. Right. Absolutely. I thought that there was um, kind of a marked difference in tone between the you have civil rights, sunshine and cheer of (laughs) the Biden administration's document versus um, some of the other things I was reading in preparation for this episode, which seem to have been written by, you know, maybe disabled people themselves, like disability advocates that were like, no, it's going to be fucking hard. And like there are all these steps and here are all the failure points. And, you know, it's not it's not as simple as you have civil rights. Like you're going to have to expend, you know, significant time and effort in order to have your to have your rights uh, realized and rights respected. And it's it's interesting that you bring up this this fixation on flexible workplace accommodation, because I think, you know, this is all this along with the kind of focus on you know, hiring an attorney and and maximizing your ability to leverage existing supports. These kind of go hand in hand. And I think they tell us something about the Biden administration's and maybe, you know, any American government's kind of philosophy, which is that all of these all of these claims, all of these conflicts are going to have to be adjudicated on a case by case basis mm-hmm. by individual Individual people in individual workplaces, that is clearly preferable to employers and to the government. So, you know, I think it's like, I don't want to say telling 
but I'm going to say telling. I think it's telling that, uh, you know, the, the focus is on like, okay, well, what can you do? Like employers should consider offering flexible accommodation instead of the focus being (laughs) on Mm -hmm. how do we do social, you know, like we've got all of these, you know, this huge number of people now that are unable to work very suddenly because of this mass disabling event. Like how do we reformulate social policy, you know, to, to support those people. Um, that's very much not the focus. The focus is like, okay, well, you know, you have to know your rights to be, uh, an effective advocate for yourself in your workplace with Mm -hmm. your boss. And it's, it's just so clear, you know, like, again, I feel like with all these documents, it's, it's the Biden administration, you know, it's the, it's like the state kind of organizing, the field of acceptable or like the field of acceptability around yes. COVID. Yes. And it, yeah. And it's, it's clearly, you know, because throughout this document, it says, you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's the level of, 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 of social policy, you know, like Phil was saying, like, you know, the real task is that we have a very inadequate welfare state. The other real task is that we were not interested in or able to control COVID transmission, you know, and all both of these documents say throughout, you know, the best way to prevent long COVID is to prevent getting COVID in the first place. But it's interesting <laughs> how that has completely, dry. you know what I mean? So it's just this mm-hmm. entire, like, it's so clear that this is responding to a preference, you know, an aggregate preference of, you know, kind of like employers <laughs> and capital and like the state. No, uh, this sort of reminds me of this trend that I kept seeing in roughly around 2016 in, um, in, in sort of airport nonfiction, this this idea that um, books that looked on their face like uh, political analysis or social commentary on further inspection turned out to be uh, nothing more than than self help. Right? <laughs> There's nothing yeah. you can do to change anything. Uh, all you can do is change the way that you uh, feel about it. And I can't help but get the sense that that uh, merger of genres is now. Uh, present in the uh, the government document rather than presenting Absolutely. a plan uh, for how we're going to go forward or the way that we're going to solve problems. Um, we're going to give you sort of a self-help guide. Here's some phone numbers, you know, uh, here's a prayer line to call essentially. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, send your, send your uh, uh, concerns up to the almighty. No, exactly. Phil, I mean, uh, there's this quote that Artie and I pull from you in our book uh, that I want to just share right now, which is, uh, while politics might seem like the art of collecting votes or co-sponsors for a piece of legislation, one exerts far greater power by determining what is up for debate and what isn't, and perhaps even more importantly, by deciding the criteria of which policy proposals are judged. And that's exactly what's going on here, right, is that part of what this document is doing and part of what this civil rights framework is doing is sort of setting up the parameters for what they are trying to tell long COVID advocates to stay within the lanes of. They're saying, don't push us past the arenas we've already given to these other groups. Don't make us do anything. Our promise to the American people as the Biden administration is that nothing will fundamentally change. And we've given you people enough. Right. You we know, made a directory. How dare you? Here's yeah. the directory. Take it or leave it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. This is what we offer. Welcome to America. No. Land of Land of the tattered welfare state. And maybe as a final point on this know your rights section, I think, uh, you know, it's always good to point to the fact that many of these ADA cases or uh, these accommodation requests, they are not guaranteed to turn out in your favor. And oftentimes uh, they result in a judgment against your request for accommodations. And and so that's like, you know, an important 
part of this framework is that we've designed the system so that any victory is singular and that actually a request for accommodations can result in um, a firm denial that your accommodations are deserved. And that is what affects other people's cases, but not your victory. Mm. Right. And that's a fundamentally sort of fucked up dynamic that's part of this law. And of course, nowhere in this mapping of, you know, what this sort of framework is as a positive rights framework for this new group of disabled people that they're messaging to. So let's continue with this document. Um, I think obviously we're going to end up, I think, having a lot to say about this healthcare section, which is the next thing that immediately uh, comes after Know Your Rights. As we said, you know, when B set this up in the first place, you know, as she said, like, this is a nice document with 120 pages of like, oh, well, you know, Medicaid exists. So good luck with that. Like try and <laughs> like if you can if you can pass the means test for Medicaid, then, you know, uh, that's a good that's a support for long COVID. Right. So um, anyway, first of all, the, the healthcare sections, I just want to read a, a couple things from this because it starts with the following statement, quote, the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted the critical importance of having healthcare coverage for yourself and your family. Oh, this part pissed <laughs> me off so much. Of course. Really cool, guys. Thanks. Open that one with a threat, basically. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. Um, and then, so just, just to read from the report, uh, so under the rubric health insurance coverage, and then it, it kind of lists all the domains through which you could possibly get health insurance coverage. Healthcare.gov. Quote, if you have private insurance through the individual market, the Affordable Care Act's essential health benefits generally provide coverage for the diagnosis and treatment of COVID-19, including long COVID. Coverage and cost sharing details can vary by plan. Generally, individuals can enroll during the open enrollment period or if they qualify for a special enrollment period. The store for details. Right, exactly. Terms and conditions. And then, of course, you know, as uh, conditions apply. And then, of course, as the rest of, you know, as as most of the things on this document have, then, of course, there's like the there's like a a link basically to healthcare.gov to to look up programs. Um, When they go on to Medicaid, when they talk about Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, um, it, it sets up what that is, you know, a uh, program for health insurance for low income people that varies state to state. Then make sure to mention, uh, quote, COVID-19 related treatment is available with no cost sharing for most Medicaid and CHIP beneficiaries. These coverage requirements and cost sharing prohibitions generally end the year following the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency, unquote. Yeah, it's, it's I want to highlight that um, because in this part of the document, it begins with by saying you know, the, the federal and state governments are you know working together to um, you know constantly uh, to uh, you know uh, promote uh, health in, in some way, and and it just sort of goes by unremarked on that the Medicaid expansion that happened as a result of the public health uh, emergency and um, when the public health emergency expires will mean that uh, absent. Uh, further changes in legislation, 15 million people are going to lose uh, Medicaid coverage and then figure out what they uh, have to do. And perhaps there'll be another self-help document at that point. And there's and there's no reflection on the fact that 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 all of the abeyance structures uh, are so rickety and so precarious. So just waiting for their expiration date to, to, to come up um, and no reflection on the fact that that is a flaw. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially considering the fact that 
the Biden administration has been making it very clear since June that they plan to have all COVID care shifting into the private market in 2023. It was just announced this week that vaccines are going to be shifting in January. Abu shelled like in the summer, Paxlovid in March. And today there was like the EUA issued for the new booster, which a lot of people are saying, like, we don't have any idea uh, if it prevents infection or if it helps stop infection. But of course, you have Ashish Jha, like as early as, you know, early August out there talking to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce saying, oh, you know, this new vaccine formula, it's a substantial upgrade in terms of ability to prevent infection and transmission. And it's just like we're looking at it's on what? Based on vibes, yeah. I get. I, I can only assume, right? You know, the the fact of the matter is, is that you know this isn't this is a threat. This is a reminder that your chances of survival are largely dependent on the generosity of your employer and whatever that you know the employer's commitment is to an austerity cult. Essentially, I mean, the the situation of your work right now has way more control over whether or not you can survive uh, and your so-called health than your individual choices or any of the sort of personal responsibility bullshit that they tell you dictates who lives and dies. Right now, it's really dependent on in the next year, are you going to have good employer-sponsored health insurance or not? Is the public health emergency going to arbitrarily end? Will you be kicked off Medicaid? Like, will you be able to afford the tools? Or really? if you are on Medicaid, will Medicaid continue to offer COVID coverage? Right. For instance, I, like, it's a disaster. Um, I think this is really it, it's really interesting because the next one is Medicare, of course. Um, the thing that's interesting about the Medicare section is that they're failing to mention the fact that children who have long COVID who may be disabled and like 18 or 19, they're not going to have enough work credits to apply for SSDI because you have to have a certain amount of you know, income taxes paid before you can even apply or qualify <laughs> for SSDI. darkest sentence I've ever heard. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know, right? It's so <laughs> fucked up. And then, like, so if you can't qualify for SSDI and you're disabled, say, like, because you went to school and there was no mask mandate and, you know, you were sick, sick as a child and got long COVID and you turn 18 and you apply for benefits, you know, if you're applying only for SSI then, which is the state supplemental security income program, which based on the state you're in, that's what determines the generosity. It's a federally mandated program, but state to state like Medicaid, SSI just is completely different. And the other really important thing is that getting SSI does not give you access to Medicare the way that SSDI does. It only gives you access to Medicaid. So it's really going to mean that the disparities that we're already seeing in long COVID based on what state you're living in, that the fact that they're not going to do shit to change the current safety net means that that safety net is also going to contribute to accelerating the disparities and like making it much harder for people to access care. Because if everybody is on Medicaid only in one state and you only have like one Medicaid long COVID clinic, that's going to completely shape how people get, you know, access to the tools in order to turn themselves back into, you know, so-called productive workers. So, yeah, it's pretty clear that we're not getting any upgrades to the welfare state. Like this document, I think, establishes that um, pretty definitively. But there is maybe a nefarious shadow to this document, which is well, a nefarious shadow makes it sound like it's going to be so much worse than it really is. But um, the National Research uh, like Action Plan for COVID, mm -hmm. um, I actually I had a lot of thoughts about this document. And 
I don't want to give away the thesis of health communism. So, you know, maybe we can just totally cut this out. But I was thinking (laughs) as I read it, kind of alongside the services and supports document, obviously, you know, people with long COVID are suffering. They are not getting adequate treatments. Like a lot of the stuff that's in the research action plan is important and necessary. And I hope it, you know, like I hope that all this money gets plowed into researching long COVID and and training medical professionals, you know, so that they aren't uh, inappropriately dismissing people with uh, symptoms that are consistent with long COVID and things like that. But as I was reading it, you know, this this one services services and supports document, which is just like full of full of holes, basically like a leaky vessel. And then this (laughs) research action plan, which is, you know, all about how the resources of the federal government are going to be mobilized to produce scientific products about long COVID. Now, I mm-hmm. think that's going to be pretty hard because, you know, the the language of science, the idiom of science is reductionism, right? Like kind of breaking things down into their smallest yeah. <laughs> components and seeing, you know, how the smallest component behaves completely in isolation, things like that. That doesn't really it's not really well suited to studying something like long COVID, which I think is going to turn out to be kind of multiple, you know, kind of a syndromic thing, mm-hmm. multiple conditions, multiple pathophysiologies, things like that. All of this is to say that, you know, all these people that are falling through the cracks of the welfare state are being, you know, transformed into surplus population. The research action plan is full of information about how concerning it is, the economic impacts of all these people Mm. being out of the workforce, you know, all of these lost wages. Um, They, I think the research action plan directly attributes the labor shortages in the service industry to long COVID, you know, so they're very, very concerned about, about this, you know, this population of, of disabled people that has been created. But I was thinking as I read this, you know, reductionism is kind of the language of science and science is kind of the instrument of the state that the state uses to kind of transform surplus populations like long COVID sufferers who can no longer work into profit centers, right? So people Mm -hmm. are going to profit from this, from this research paradigm. You know what I mean? Careers are going to be made too. Careers are going to be made. Yeah, substantial public and private resources are going to be mobilized and poured into this research. Um, And it's it's just kind of like reconstituting these disabled populations as productive, if only indirectly. And what I'm not saying, I'm not even saying this is bad. This is just kind of how it is. Like, I think this is just kind of the function of science, like in in our political economy. I certainly don't think that that the research is bad, although there's a lot in the research plan about like, oh boy, like we got to disentangle the effects, like what was caused by the virus versus what was yeah, caused by f- learning. Further loss. individuating and um, further individuating uh, the population of people and, and sort of creating narrow, narrow categories, which was just sort of, I think, uh, goes back to this point of like, this is why building a, a series of social programs as responses to very, very narrow categories of risks that emerge is, is a bad idea. And right. sort of if you look at the history of uh, theorizing on welfare states, this is one reason uh, for universalism uh, in, in the first place is not just that d- developing all these narrow categories at some point just becomes administratively um, absurd, mm-hmm. uh, but, but because uh, those categories and, and the distinctions among people based on risks uh, becomes 
something that is like, it may not even exist. Uh, in fact, it's, it's too complicated or like the science on like, okay, who actually has like long COVID or like, or the moral, uh, equation of like, was this person, you know, quote unquote, like truly worthy, uh, of these benefits in the long run is something that the, the process of delay itself weakens the, the sort of expected value of any of the benefits that might exist, uh, in a way in the first place. Uh, so this idea that, uh, you know, we're going to be focused on like, you know, really carefully, like gatekeeping, uh, who is in and who is out of this population, I think goes, goes to reveal the fundamentally like bankrupt character of a, a means tested sort of liberal welfare state, uh, to begin with. Well, and that's why I think Abby, the way that you phrase it as a, as like a, the research agenda being a shadow of this services and supports document is really interesting because ultimately so much of that research is going to be used to define the boundaries of who is and who is not constituted as, you know, a covered entity, Completely. really, you know what and I mean? And it's this total, again, like reduction, you know, it's reductionism and individualism because, you know, for whom is it really necessary to uncover, you know, the genetic, you know, the, the NIH recover study, I think is partnering with all of us, which is a huge NIH study that's looking for, it's like genomic stuff, you know, so for whom is it necessary to uncover, you know, genetic signatures of susceptibility to long COVID? <laughs> I think you could make an argument that that's not super necessary for long COVID. Yeah. And I think that's part of the thing where I start thinking about like all of these studies, for example, that we're seeing right now where people are really trying to nail down prevalence. And I think that the debate over what is alarmist or not alarmist in terms of a kind of long COVID prevalence estimate is is really tied into this whole framework, too, because I think Part of what the anxiety that the state has is this kind of twin agenda of not wanting too large of a group formation as a kind of political uh, stakeholder group, right? (laughs) Like they do not want the long COVID group to be a broad base of identification. There is vested interest that the state has in narrowing down the criteria of what long COVID is to saying like, okay, well, maybe long COVID is only a kind of biological inflammatory response to COVID and not thinking about long COVID as a kind of expansive diagnostic category and saying, well, maybe there's room in our conceptual framework for considering long COVID as being both like a vascular disease and also maybe a disease of like, you know, sustained depression because the state is fucking up so bad. You know, there are much more expansive ways that we can think of diagnosis, but because of the way that our insurance system works, that our health finance system works, we have these vested interests in denying people care baked into the system. And so what's going on right now is Basically, that the the state is sort of mobilizing all its various apparatus to start to construct ways of biocertifying what counts as valid long COVID and what doesn't count and who deserves to be able to claim that group association and therefore join that political constituency and who they would prefer to keep out of it. And that's not like a sort of insidious agenda that's like arising, you know, just in this context. This is just how things work in our political economy. This is how we um, commercialize and commodify people's experience of symptoms of disease and of prolonged chronic illness. Right. I mean, that's why, you know, group formation among people with AIDS was a threat, for example. Yeah. Um, And considering that this does seem to be very prevalent and that 
you know, that basically the state in all of its other policies is doing everything it can to sort of marshal that continued prevalence to marshal more and more infections that will end in things like long COVID, you know, there is a danger that not only does, you know, long COVID then become so prevalent that there is a, uh, that there is group formation as, mm-hmm. as B is talking about, um, but that that group is radicalized against the state because they recognize that it was a systemic abandonment, which you can, that result that, you know, um, made that group so large, basically, which it, like even in the services and supports document that they're putting forward that we're talking about, it's like when you actually then look at it, you know, I think that it is a substantial threat. I would hope that this group would be highly radicalized by just looking at this document that the Biden administration itself produced, which again mm-hmm. says, you know, here's a bunch of fucking phone numbers and websites you can go to to like get some form of coverage. Maybe if you happen to qualify, by the way, the barriers for qualification are extraordinarily high. You have to fit extremely specific qualifications et cetera, et cetera. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that the circumstances of long COVID are also a disease process that requires the infection. And with that being subject to testing, like restrictions, you know, this is like a whole construction of an identity category that's going on. And like, while they are telling the long COVID community, here we are, you know, creating pathways for you to be sort of franchised into the understanding of chronic illness, what they're also doing at the same time is they're, you know, bringing these oppressive and subjective structures that are applied to all diagnoses to the context of long COVID. And, you know, some of I I get why they're trying to restrict the diagnostic category, because if we're going to talk about what those sort of, quote unquote, scary prevalence estimates are, it's as high as 50 percent of infections result in long COVID symptoms. So if we're talking about a policy from the U.S. government of, you know, the full Beyblade strategy, let it rip, you know, prioritizing nothing about preventing infections, everything's about reactive treatment post-infection, and we're getting, you know, hundreds of millions of people infected, you know, over the course of maybe 10, 15 years. And if, if, like worst case scenario, let's say prevalence estimates at 50% are right, that is like a ridiculously high scale of forced debility and impairment and suffering that, you know, is kind of uniquely on the Biden administration at this point as, as a sort of consequence, right? Because this is going to, you know, regardless of what the prevalence is, whether it's 30%, 50%, like whatever, it's already too many. And the fact of the matter is, is that they're going to have to seek to restrict the size of this political constituency because, you know, it's frankly so large because of the result of their discrete actions. And now the only choice to sort of move forward is how can we sort of try and manage this population? And that's they're not trying to meet anyone's needs with long COVID. They're trying to manage the constituency that is applying the most pressure on yes. them right now, which is, I think, coming from the long COVID community. Right. And that's and I and I keep looking for when I read a document like this, um, you know, what are all of the the smaller sort of no brainer, like not huge reconstructive lifts uh, that they could have included in the document? And you think about things like, you know, uh, like waiving the uh, t- 24 month Medicare waiting period for, for people on SSDI or, you know, somewhat more minor um, administrative uh, changes like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those things don't necessarily uh, enter in the, into the report in part because I think they're just responding to um, the fact that now 
it, it's sort of undeniable that you have this large population of people um, with long COVID uh, out there. And the idea that, you know, you have these sort of mainstream economists uh, talking about the the large number of people, millions of people losing uh, work hours and wages as a result of um, having long COVID. Now the Census Bureau has been producing uh, these sort of gargantuan um, statistics of the size estimates of the size of the population of people who have uh, long COVID symptoms. And, and it is kind of inescapable uh, politically, but at the same time, there's no concerted uh, or sort of organized pressure uh, to really rethink the way that, um, or to, to think about what this sort of teaches us about the pathologies of uh, the American welfare state. And instead um, I think it, we end up sort of learning uh, or the administration is sort of learning a different lesson. Um, Cause at the same time uh, you have uh, a she's child, they're talking about how, you know, in no short amount of time, uh, we are going to uh, begin commercializing um, yeah, treatments again, right? Like that, in a way, like compared to other uh, welfare states, you can look at uh, welfare states that were really generous uh, prior to the pandemic. They didn't end up needing to change a lot of the way that they were working, you didn't need a lot of policy overhauls. There are welfare states that were less generous. They did make more significant changes. But in the United States, uh, you get this real patchwork of programs but then um, rather than even making those changes permanent, they just end up being counter cyclical. And so, you know, when the quite when the crisis, uh, quote unquote, abates, which is not necessarily even true or when it uh, is politically prudent for it to seem as if it is abating, um, then, you know, all of that is sort of eliminated. And we go back and in fact, the, the system becomes even more robust to or resilient to what it was before. It's, it's not there's not a change in a way from. Uh, the baseline, the only lesson that, I, you know, we're learning is we can go back and commercialize more. <laughs> well, right. Well, and that's why I think it's really important to think of all of this, not as even necessarily, I think, I actually don't think that uh, this report or these reports are responses necessarily to the, to even the stuff we were talking about with like, uh, you know, the idea of this large mass of people as, you know, potentially having a threat of group formation or as a response to pressures necessarily from, you know, disability advocates or long COVID advocates or or whatever. But frankly, I think a lot of the conversation around long COVID, certainly as far as it seems in relationship to the Biden administration, but also certainly outside of it, um, some of the things that you sort of referenced, Phil, for example, like the um, there's I, I think there was maybe one of the things you were gesturing to was the like Brookings Institution report mm -hmm. that came mm -hmm. out a week ago. So many of these things, I think, are geared not towards, you know, the actual um it's like that they're they're geared towards like the object of study the object of concern here is understanding like the shrinkage of the labor force or like the labor force as a body as an aggregate you know what i mean as opposed to like the quality of life of people who are newly omitted from that labor force or who or who have had you know their hours reduced or something because they have long covid when i say that i think of you know things like for example how when uh, they did, you know, when, whenever they've made big um, social policy changes, things like the isolation guidance change, um, you know, when when the isolation guidance was changed to uh, go down to five days, mm -hmm. for example, uh, at the end of last year, you know, Fauci went on CNN and said of that, the the quote is, um, I think this was very a very prudent and good choice on the part of the CDC 
which we spent a considerable amount of time discussing, namely getting people back to work in half the time that they would have been out so that they can get back to the workplace, doing things that are important to keep society running smoothly. And again, you know, I just I think that's so much of the actual impetus here is Mm -hmm. like keeping this figurative labor force from shrinking as opposed to actually you know it's not really it's none of this shit is about the quality of life or or the experience of people actually trying to find it's like okay so do everything you can to keep your fucking shitty job and then if you really can't here's medicaid if you really can't here's whatever if you really can't uh, the next get a one, lawyer. The next session, like right lawyer. after, right? get a lawyer. Exactly. Get a lawyer. Better exactly. call Saul. And then if you really, and then if you really can't, um, one of the sections right after the healthcare section is they mention unemployment benefits. You know, classic point of political concern over the you know first year or so of the pandemic. Formerly, they were uh, unemployment benefits were federally enhanced for a short period of time. Um, both to increase the the payout and to increase the duration. Obviously, those are those are gone now. So this report has to say, you know, unemployment benefits vary from state to state. They don't even mention there, but then mention in like the seventh or something section after that, um, which in a section called caregiving and family support, they mentioned that uh, family and medical leave is, uh, you know, not generally available in the US at a federal level by any means, but in <laughs> count them, seven states, <gasps> seven, seven okay. whole states in so the District generous. of Columbia. Well, you know what? You can always just are... work with your employer on a one-on-one basis to secure an accommodation <laughs> if you want to have a kid <laughs> or if <laughs> you need daycare. I read this book called Getting to Yes. <laughs> um, in that, I mean, in that same section that has the unemployment uh, insurance, sorry, the unemployment benefits listed as one of these things that putatively addresses long COVID. Um, here's a fucking knee slapper. One of the headline topics is tax credits. I saw the earned uh, income tax credit. Great, thank you. Thanks. Uh, what are they calling him? Dark Brandon. Fuck off. <laughs> Well, I didn't mean to imply earlier that group formation is some kind of magical key to like political awakening either, because that's part of the problem, right? Is like, you know, if if the group forms, let's say like the polio generation of disability activists and what the group's politic is insufficient to like demand actual changes that will, you know, result in some kind of material parity for disabled people or chronically ill people, you know, it's it's really going to depend on sort of what like spirit these movements take like what their influence and capabilities are going to be in terms of like pressuring the US government but as a as a crisis of scale potentially for the US government to have had a policy where you're basically forcing all these people to get infected who are not only maybe going to become a political constituency in order to like be a pain in your ass, but who also are going to become this big eugenic debt burden on the workforce, the productivity of America and potentially, you know, like the perfect reason to uh, start talking about the Medicare trust fund again and all these sort of, you know, narratives of like, you know, the poisonous debt that sick people bring to our nation as part of the body politic, you know, and and this is this is where like prevalence, I think, starts to matter. You know, if you think about polio, right, I mentioned the polio generation of disability activists that, you know, this is like people who got things highly regressive, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but these are the people who got things like Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act or the ADA sort of 
enacted and who enacted these neoliberal frameworks of, you know, sort of dealing with rights one on one, um, that that's being used really heavily in the media as a kind of reference point. Oh, this is another moment of sort of, you know, a mass disabling event and polio. We like to talk about how like the nation comes together in order to make the vaccine and sort of fix the problem. But like the prevalence with polio was like one in 200 infections resulted in long term symptoms. The prevalence with COVID on the conservative end of estimates from the CDC, which puts it at as low as 20 percent, that's one in five people. Right. So that's the scale wise. This is, I think, a a crisis that immediately runs into problems specifically because of our political economy, because of how much we devalue people for their labor and how little we give to people for their work. Like all of these sort of benefits that are contingent on your productivity. SSDI is contingent on your fucking work history. I mean, what could be more fundamental than understanding how important frameworks of who is a worker and who is not influence who deserves any support or care and who the state feels does not. And this is like so important and fundamental. And I feel, you know, I think it, I hope that this is a moment where people with long COVID can see this stuff happening and like get pissed that this is happening because that's the only way that we're going to get towards a politic where we don't repeat these like horrific mistakes and stand up a new D- new ADA. I mean, there has not been like big federal disability legislation since the ADA. There was one update to it. In the 30 years before the ADA was passed, there were over 60 federal bills about disability. In the 30 years after, nothing. The disability rights movement has been really busy in one-on-one litigation under the ADA instead. I mean, it was a fundamentally counterinsurgent legal framework. And this is the kind of thing where they're just directing long COVID groups to get ready to join that process, right? And not, you know, giving them any sort of clue as to what they're facing. And I think, you know, if we can get people to the point of being really fucking mad about this, maybe we do have the possibility for passing something better or for fucking starting over. Because at this point, that's exactly what we need, frankly. Right. And so I think this document itself, hopefully, frankly, again, I, I mentioned it as a cell phone before. I think that we should understand this document as a real point of potential weakness for the Biden administration in terms of its overall COVID response, but also as something that I think that, like, frankly, if you're in a long COVID group or something like that, I think you should really get fucking mad about this because, again, I said this before, but I'm just going to read this again. This is from, um, we'll, uh, I think we'll get to chapter five of this document towards the very end. Uh, Chapter five is called future directions. And you may think that this is, you know, going to tell us what the purpose is, how it's going to be used, where they're going to go from here, right? Where, how they're going to build on top of this directory of services that already exist. Um, But instead this ending bit is just the sort of hilarious chapter that's incredibly damning about their own methodology. And so uh, the part that I'm going to read again that that I had read before, and this is just to remind you now that you've heard a couple of the things that are in here, is that it says at the beginning of this chapter, quote, these services and supports for long-term impacts of COVID-19 report, the report we've been talking about, is an important component of the overall federal response. It provides resources relevant to individuals. I, I read that the longer quote earlier, but... Um, they then, you know, go on to say uh, they go on to talk about their methodology and how they compiled this report, which is again putatively 
quote unquote, a important component of the overall federal response for long COVID. (laughs) They talk about how they hosted listening sessions. They did this thing. They call it the you know HHS did this program called Health Plus, which then there's a trademark over, which is. Uh, over a thousand p- hours of patient interviews, workshops, listening sessions, and human-centered research um, to you know talk to basically like they're they're asserting that they you know went and asked people about their embodied experience, right? And what they get from this, it, it's very dark because I'm, I won't go into all the language here, but essentially the 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 picture that I get is essentially people told them um, we're frustrated. It's hard to figure out what is actually something that we can you know get. Like what, what is something that exists? Like how can the, how can elements of the welfare state or like, or the, the courts even, I guess in this case, um, support us frustrated by being uh, gaslit by doctors, for example, who say like, oh, you didn't have a, you know, you don't have a previous past positive COVID test on record anywhere. Therefore, how could you possibly have long COVID, et cetera, et cetera. They, they you know, they got all of these, you know, pieces of embodied experience that are not going to be unfamiliar to anyone who's seen a lot of, you know, statements made by uh, any really anyone with long COVID who you could just see like uh, casually glancing across fucking Twitter. And then you end up with things like this quote across listening sessions and health plus engagements, stakeholders repeatedly emphasize the need for accessible supports and services. Great takeaway. However, uh, they indicated a compilation of these resources could help lessen the burden of COVID-19 and indiv- on individuals and families. So in my position, I'm just thinking like, okay, this is one thing that they, that people said like, oh yeah, sure. Compile it. Yeah, of course. You know what, what I, I mean? need is a phone book. Have you heard of the yellow pages? <laughs> um, so they say it, um, in the coming months, the information within this report will be posted on federal websites. Navigable web pages will help individuals and others affected by COVID-19 and long COVID quickly and efficiently find services and supports. Printable fact sheets will help mm. healthcare personnel connect the people they serve to the resources they need. Um, at, and then they say at the same time, fact sheet. <laughs> right? There's there's too much here. But I'll leave a final thing, which I'm not going to I'm not going to add like an air horn sound effect under what I'm going to say. But you can imagine one Um, (laughs) conclusion, quote, although we are still learning about long covid and the longer term impacts of covid-19, a lot has been done. Mm-mm. And there are substantial services and supports through many U.S. government programs mm-hmm. to support those affected, unquote. That's their fucking takeaway. <laughs> Congrats to the team. Great, great job on the report, y'all. Mission accomplished. And I don't want to diminish the, you know, if you've ever been looking for information on a government website and you've not been able to find it, there's a level of um, excruciating pain and, and dread that comes with that. Um, so there's there's some value in, in helping people navigate the system um, that exists. But that's ultimately, uh, as, as we've been saying, it doesn't really bear on a lot of where the obvious problems are. And it doesn't take yes. uh, much to see right. how what this ends up looking like is, you know, you're drawing somebody a map. You're saying here X marks the spot. Here's where the treasure is. Mm-hmm. They go there. And instead of finding the treasure, they are summarily kicked into the hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it kind of my my takeaway from this was that it kind of reminded me of. Kind of like what you were saying, Phil, it kind of reminded me of when I used to work at like a crisis hotline, you know, and my job was to, you know, connect people, like help find people resources if that's what they were looking for. Um, 
but oftentimes really just to kind of like validate people, you know, and, and listen to them and maybe talk through like what they were going through. I get the same vibe from this document, but like this is the federal government of the United <laughs> States of America being like, oh, like, you know, what are you doing for self-care? You know, right. like, have you do you have this phone number for a resource in your area? Like, I don't think that that's that's an inappropriate thing to offer, you know, to people that are suffering or in crisis or whatever. But I think um, at the level of of the federal government's like plan to address the challenges that long COVID are going to pose in the coming years, I think it's pretty it's inadequate. And like you like you said, Artie, I think it's fairly patronizing and insulting, even though, yes, it is. I agree with you, Phil, that it is useful to have all these all this information in one place. I'm not trying to diminish the value of that, but I really don't think it's enough. Well, I mean, it's one thing to cure people. Let's say we we have this research agenda. It's amazing. It works. We find a cure for long COVID. I mean, cure is like a highly problematic concept, but like, let's say we find a cure. Long COVID's fixed. Um, does that make it okay to send them back into a labor context where they're going right back into a meat grinder, where they're going to be infected again, where they will still not have paid leave, where they will still not yeah. have child mm-hmm. support, like, or sorry, well, they will still not have like support for taking time off to take care of their family if they get sick or even potentially health insurance or free tools, right? Like, is it OK to cure people with long COVID and then put them back into this context where they will be both infected and continued to be extracted from? Like, not to mention whatever that cure is going to require from them as a financial participant, because, you know, healthcare in the United States, we like to make sure people feel the pain and pay for it, too, because Lord knows everyone's going to like, you know, overutilize all of that fucking medical care if we don't make sure that it hurts every time you need to access the doctor. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's kind of the fundamental thing. Like, yes, on the one hand, like I would obviously agree with you, Phil. It's important for this stuff to be uh, really accessible. Um, I think the the like, you know, digging the hole and then being pushed down into it is like a a perfect Perfect. way to, (laughs) to say it. But it's kind of like, you know, for example, let's say. Okay, we know that there are a lot of un like as as just one general example that gets brought up a lot actually like okay we know a lot of people are uninsured or underinsured in the United States, um and so there there's like okay different programs in different places to meet those people in not necessarily where they are but meet those people in places where they where they either tend to be or go or interact with the state and say like okay here's an opportunity for us to suggest that you fill out a form to apply for Medicaid right. Like, okay, that's not bad, obviously, but how ridiculous is it that we need to, that we don't just have a fucking universal program? You know what right, I mean? Exactly. Like it's, mm-hmm. and so that's, that's the, I think that's kind of the big thing at the end of the day, but this is also just something, again, we have a huge moment of potential leverage for because this affects so many people and it's potentially a situation where, again, in this, you know, mass disabling event, we have essentially a lot of people who are for the first time potentially thinking about, wow, actually all these promises that I've been sold about what America is and does for people mm-hmm. are just lies. They're just not, it's just not true. It's like, you know, we support some people in some ways, but for every person that we support in one way, there are countless ways that we immiserate people instead. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. And to bring this back to a point that I think B made earlier, you can expect now that the people who were um, you know, minimizing the risk of the pandemic kind of throughout 
um, the last few years um, that now they're going to be the same people kind of emphasizing the need to gatekeep the size of the population um, of people who have long COVID. And, you know, for the purposes of, of, of putting the lid or keeping the lid on, you know, any sort of, uh, you know, major changes or emancipatory changes um, uh, to the welfare state. And I think that the the response to that has to be, look, what we ended up doing in the course of the last few years was not necessarily responding to a pandemic, but uh, all of the measures that we uh, were able to pass were, in, in fact, a way of responding to a crisis of capitalism. And, and once we've managed through that crisis, it's now really obvious that we're going to go back to um, uh, the status quo and, and, and perhaps an even more robust version uh, of that uh, status quo from the perspective of the existing um, system. And the response to that has to be something like, look, the problem here isn't long COVID. The problem is that we had a welfare state that wasn't actually working uh, to support the working class, you know, from from the beginning, even before the pandemic. And and the problem is not uh, further circumscribing this population of people long COVID, who have long COVID, but actually recognizing uh, all of the people that are not served by or, or in fact, disadvantaged by this, this uh, really precarious patchwork of programs. Such a good point. Well, and I, I hope, you know, if you're listening to this long COVID that you start to see your symptoms as, you know, not just like a challenge to your survival, but a call to arms. This is, I think, a moment yeah. for us to reshape the way that we advocate for chronic illness and disability and to take these kind of frameworks that, you know, these small and large groups, you know, in, in many ways have been working with and break them out of these identity categories into these broader frames, looking at, you know, with the context of COVID, you know, can you do disability advocacy anymore without advocating for universal health care? Like, I don't think so. And I'll tell you what, like a public option is not going to cut it. And I think at the end of the day, these are the conversations that we have to start having and that we have to start working with. But, you know, unfortunately, we can't look to like past disability movements or past movements for health reform in the United States in order to sort of let that lead moving forward. We have to make our own demands based on the context that we're in and the context that we're in demands a massive overhaul of the safety net. It demands massive changes to the way that we employ people and give people benefits for their work and for who we certify as a worker and who we certify as deserving of care being dictated by being a worker or not being a worker. These are the structures that successful long COVID advocacy needs to attack. And this is the kind of struggle that we are looking at in the long term here. And it's time to sort of come together and realize that like, if we are together and if we recognize that revolutionary potential in our symptoms. It's very obvious that this is a clear threat to Biden's plan for nothing to fundamentally change. And I feel like that's like <laughs> at the end of the day, like the most important point, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe that's a good place to leave it for today. Yeah, I think so. Also, um, while, as you said, I think you're right in saying we can't just look to, you know, what has worked for some of the you know, better known disability movements in the past. I would point everyone to our history of section 504 uh, part two, specifically the patron episode version of that mm-hmm. um, as uh, something to maybe listen to immediately following this. If you're looking for, if, uh, if you're looking for ideas. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a good recommendation. And uh, if you want to listen to that episode, become a patron. Uh, You'll support the show and get access to all of our second weekly bonus episodes. That's at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, 
share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. Abby, as always, such a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you for coming again today. Yeah, thanks so much. And patrons will catch you on Monday in the patron feed. Everyone else will catch you later in the week. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Don't you go, don't you go, I should sit, put my nerves.